If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Fifty years ago this month, in February 1972, US President Richard Nixon embarked on a trip to China, and the meeting proved to be a key moment in the thawing of relations between the two nations. To mark the anniversary, Professor Rana Mitter, who specialises in the history of modern China, spoke to Deputy Editor Matt Elton. They spoke about the importance of Nixon's visit and the extent to which its legacy changed the course of the 20th century. Rana, we're talking in the middle of February, which marks an anniversary that I think some people may not be that familiar with. Could you just outline what it is that we're talking about today, I suppose? Pretty much exactly half a century ago, as we're speaking, in February 1972, a meeting took place in China that I think even now we could say probably was one of the most significant events of the 20th century. And that was the meeting between the President of the United States, Richard M. Nixon, and the leader, chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, Mao Zedong. And the reason that this was really so epochal is that These two countries, you know, the most populous country in the world, China, and the most powerful country in the world, the United States, had essentially not had any formal links with each other since the revolution of 1949 that had thrown the uh, Chinese nationalist government at the time off uh, China's mainland to the island of Taiwan and seen the ascendancy of the Chinese Communist Party. When the revolution in China had happened, the United States had essentially broken off diplomatic relations, and then the two sides basically found themselves unable to find a way to restore them for you know the best part of, well, more than two decades, in fact. And so the decision by a right-wing, anti-communist American president to make the leap of visiting the world's most populous communist state was really a major milestone in its own right. But the reason it's so significant, and as I say, so epochal in retrospect, is that it reset the Cold War. It meant the relationship between uh, China, the United States, and the Soviet Union changed profoundly. And it also set the pathway um, out for where we are today, the story in which the United States is still the world's most powerful nation. But today, unlike 1972, the world's second biggest economy, second biggest military, and most important challenger nation to America's supremacy is that same China that was opened up to the Americans by that visit in 1972. So a really important moment half a century ago. And there's so much to unpack there. I wanted to start by um, exploring something you just mentioned, which was I suppose Nixon's motivations for doing this might externally seem quite surprising. What was the background to him wanting to be the person who who did this, who made this move? If you had to name the most obvious person in America to make a kind of gesture of outreach to communist China in the 1960s, I don't know who you would have picked, I don't know, maybe 
John F. Kennedy or someone, but I don't think Richard Nixon would have been anyone's choice. Because if you did have to pick the name of a politician who perhaps more than anyone else was associated with the fight against global communism, Nixon probably could have filled that particular slot. He wasn't quite as notorious as Joe McCarthy, whose name has become a synonym for, for red baiting. But Nixon was actually much more powerful. He became the vice president of the United States under Eisenhower. And part of essentially what the Eisenhower administration did with Nixon in the 50s was send him around the world as Mr. Anti-Communism. Uh, so that could be in you know, the dictatorships of South America where he got sent. And you know he would essentially say words to the effect of even if this is a dictatorship, it's an anti-communist dictatorship, which is much better than uh, the alternative. Or so he argued. And the iconic moment, the really kind of, you know, uh, moment that, that summed this up was when he was sent to Moscow and debated with the then Soviet um, leader, Khrushchev, about whether the lifestyles of the Soviet middle class or the American middle class were better. It became known as a kitchen debate because showing the kind of typical items that an American family would have in their kitchen, you know, refrigerator, um, a kind of high quality oven, you know, really nice equipment just couldn't be matched in the Soviet Union. And so Nixon was said to have you know, won the battle against communism in a sense by showing that the Americans had better kitchen appliances, probably a better way to win the battle than nuclear weapons, to be honest. But in other words, Nixon's credentials as the man who could argue against communism were impeccable. And that, of course, is one of the reasons why he had the credibility in a way that other leaders might not have done in America to go to China. And how radical a stance was this for him to be taking at the time he did so? It was a pretty radical move for Nixon to decide he was going to go to China, but it didn't come out of the blue. First of all, other politicians, including politicians in the predecessor Lyndon Johnson administration, had debated whether or not it might be a good idea to open up to China. And Nixon himself had written in the journal Foreign Affairs, worse the effect of it's not possible permanently to keep China out of the family of nations. So he had sent out some signals. But that having been said, when he got elected in 1968 in an extremely contested, extremely bruising election at that time when America itself was you know, rioting and up in flames and deeply divided politically, in that context, opening up to China didn't seem like the most public thing he was likely to do. But the politics of America actually made it quite important for him to do so. And there was one particular reason, one word you might say, that was absolutely on his shoulders. And that word was Vietnam. It's worth remembering quite how much the division in American society of the 60s was based on the conscription of young men, some young women, but mostly young, young men, in terms of, of being forced to go, who fought in a land war in Asia, which fewer and fewer people could see was going to come to any kind of good end uh, by the time that Nixon was elected. But it wasn't clear to him quite how he was going to end the war, get America out of it, without in some way resetting the wider context of the Cold War. And making the decision that by bringing China back into his phrase, the family of nations, by opening up to another communist power and showing an act of statesmanship by doing so, he would be in a better position also, amongst other things, to shut down the Vietnam War, at least in terms of the American participation, which a few years later in 1972-73, to be fair, he would eventually manage to do, even if in slightly murky circumstances. So the opening to China was, at least in part, a way of dealing with one of America's most pressing geopolitical problems, which was the need to get out of Vietnam. We've talked about Nixon and about America. We should talk about the other side of this um, situation. What was China's background at this point and what did it stand to gain from this meeting? In some ways, 1972 and the months and years leading up to it were not the most obvious time for China 
to open up to the United States because it was a period right at the heart of the Cultural Revolution. We now know that the Cultural Revolution lasted essentially 10 very brutal years from 1966 to 76, but nobody knew that at the time. There was no end point that was set for it. And it was essentially a sort of ideological, but actually not just ideological, you know, also military civil war. China's leader, Chairman Mao, had essentially declared war on his own Communist Party in 1966, arguing that it had become lazy and complacent. And he told, amongst others, China's youth, you know, the famous Red Guards, to rise up and, you know, beat up their teachers, beat up their elders. And of course, it was a way of him purging some of his political rivals, too. So by the time you get to the early 70s, the leadership at the top has changed quite substantially, but also various really murky and disturbing things have gone on. One was the sudden deposition from power or departure from power at high speed of Mao's designated successor, a man named Lin Biao, who was supposed to, he was the Minister Minister of Defence. Everyone thought he was going to succeed Mao when Mao finally died. And then shocking news in 1971 that Lin Biao had been apparently attempting a coup against Mao. He and his family had bundled into a plane which had then crashed in outer Mongolia, killing him and everyone on board. Even today, the story is one that isn't entirely, you know, transparent to, to, to put it uh, to put it mildly. But what it meant was that internal politics in China became very fragile. There were essentially two factions. Zhou Enlai, the relatively pragmatic premier of China, wanted to basically kickstart China's economy, which had been horribly damaged under the Cultural Revolution. He knew that China needed foreign investment and probably opening up to the outside world to do it. On the other side, the so-called Gang of Four. They weren't called that at the time. That was a later term that was used for them. But it's a good shorthand for the radical cultural revolution, you know, fanatics, including Mao's wife, Jiang Qing, who argued that no, America was, you know, this huge ideological enemy. There was no way that opening up to foreign capital, you know, capitalism and capital could ever be permitted. So those factional battles were raging, you know, the radicals versus the pragmatists, with Mao sort of sitting like kind of emperor, quite ill by that stage, on top of everything. And meanwhile, the pragmatists won in terms of the invitation being extended to the Americans and the message being sent out that, yes, if you, if you ask for an invitation, we will you know, be likely to accept it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm interested particularly in the fact that China turned to America rather than, say, Russia. Um, were there reasons that sort of pushed them away from choosing that route? Logically, it might seem that the two biggest communist powers in the world, the Soviet Union and China, would find some kind of uh, understanding. But in fact, by the late 1960s, the situation was ironically almost the opposite. China was much more worried about the Soviets than it was about the Americans. The reason for that lay in the events of a decade earlier. During the 50s, China and the Soviet Union had been very closely allied, lots of technical cooperation, ideological affinity, all of that. And then it started to go wrong. After the death of Stalin, Mao began to feel that the Soviets under Khrushchev and Stalin's successors were going soft. They were willing to accommodate the West too much. They weren't really true communists anymore. And the language and rhetoric between the two sides became more and more savage until essentially the two sides split. There was a split between the Soviets and the Chinese in the the early 1960s. 1960 is the sort of date that's usually given as the moment when joint cooperation in engineering projects stopped, for instance. It didn't mean a break in diplomatic relations. There were always sort of ambassadors between the two sides. But in terms of genuine cooperation, it was a very, very cold break. And that meant that China essentially found itself isolated from the outside world. Um, 
because, of course, it wasn't friends with the Americans. It now was no longer friends with the Soviets either. It didn't really have any other major ideological allies. And during the Cultural Revolution, things got even worse. Um, China basically recalled most of its ambassadors, except the ambassador to Egypt, as it happened, and kind of indoctrinated them and then sent them back out again. But as a sort of you know, ideological warriors, they, they weren't really ambassadors in the, the classic sense of that, of, of that phrasing. And at the same time, there was also increasingly strong and by no means you know, unreasonable rumours that war might break out with the Soviet Union, particularly over disputed islands in the Asuri River on the northeastern border area of China. So the prospect of a war with the Soviet Union, which would have been you know, potentially devastating, was yet another thing that concentrated minds in Beijing and made them think, well, in this context, weirdly enough, it may be better to talk to the capitalist Americans than those so-called communists in Moscow, who actually are rather more dangerous for our aims than the people in Washington. So all the players are in place, if you like. How do you, how do you go about setting up a diplomatic mission like this? What are the mechanics of actually making this kind of thing happen? And what happened when the Americans did go to China? So if you had to sum up in one word how this astonishing coup of uh, the Nixon visit was set up, then the one word I'd choose would be skullduggery. And skullduggery might be combined with diplomacy. The two are often quite closely related. And you have to turn to the always intriguing figure of Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger was the national security advisor who Nixon appointed when he'd been elected president. And it now turns out, you know, we now know from memoirs and recollections that in fact, very early on in Kissinger's time as national security advisor, he was given this task by Nixon of, okay, let's see what we can do about China. And essentially, there's lots of to and fro, you know, these kind of sort of underground conversations that have already been going on, actually, before even before Nixon came in, uh, through the embassies of the Americans and the Chinese in Warsaw, which is one of the few capital cities where the diplomats could actually kind of meet each other without attracting too much attention. But once Kissinger got into, into high gear, essentially, an, a first set of meetings for him was arranged uh, to take place in secret via the Pakistanis, because Pakistan was another country that had good relations both with America and with China, um, mainly because both of them were not that keen on India, but that's a, that's a slightly different story. Um, so basically, on a diplomatic visit to Pakistan, Kissinger announces one evening that, oh, he's got a dodgy tummy, he's eaten something odd, uh, you know, the, the Islamabad um, dining table, and he needs to sort of go to bed and deal with his dodgy stomach, but not a bit of it. In fact, he's been whisked out the back into a plane for a secret mission to fly to Beijing. And essentially that first undercover mission where he, doesn't meet, he didn't meet Mao, but he did meet Zhou Enlai and some of the other top Chinese leaders, where they negotiate what the terms of a visit by Nixon to America to China would be is the sort of starting point. And then after you know some diplomacy of that sort, some kind of signals on both sides, the announcement then comes in that essentially in the summer of 1971, that Nixon will visit China essentially before the next presidential election, which of course he had his eye on in 1972. So behind the scenes act actions by people like Zhou Enlai, people like Henry Kissinger and others were very much part of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the mixture. And of course, it was one of the reasons why Kissinger was one of the key players who actually went on that visit to Beijing along with uh, Nixon and the rest of the delegation. The visit itself was a week long, and Nixon himself, with the kind of slightly hammy rhetoric that he became known for, but in this case, he could probably be forgiven, um, referred to it as the week that changed the world. And, you know, there's something to that, actually. The visit itself was a week that combined a certain amount, as you'd expect, of sort of ceremony, 
with quite a lot of really hardcore negotiation. So the ceremonial was what the rest of the world tended to notice. And you know, Nixon was very insistent there must be full TV cameras everywhere. So in his uh, plane, the spirit of 76, as in 1776, the um, American independence, um, landed at the, the airport in Beijing. He was actually a bit disappointed because he hoped there'd be like crowds of you know thousands and thousands of Chinese waving American flags or something to, to meet him, a bit like the Cultural Revolution, but you know, but not. Um, but in fact, there was a, a small and significant honor guard to meet him, quite an honor. But at the same time, um, it was uh, it was quite quiet and they were driven through these these empty streets in, in, in Beijing. But even the first meeting was symbolic because Nixon shook the hand of the prime minister, Joe Enlai, who'd come to the airport to meet him. And that was very important because in 1954, less than 20 years before, when Joe Enlai had visited Geneva to try and negotiate um, accords on an arrangement for in Vietnam, the then Republican Secretary of State, who had been in the same administration as Nixon, of course, uh, Nixon was vice president, and the Secretary of State was John Foster Dulles. And there was a sort of slightly staged attempt to get Joe Enlai in a position where he could shake hands with John Foster Dulles. And John Foster Dulles, very, you know, also in a slightly staged way, very prominently refused to shake his hand because he didn't acknowledge that communist China was a legitimate state and didn't recognize the PRC. So by going, stepping, coming down the, 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 the gangway steps and then shaking the hand of Prime Minister Zhou Enlai, Nixon, in a sense, was making up for the snub that had been uh, placed upon uh, the, the, the encounter between uh, Foster and, uh, and, and Joe a couple of decades previously. And then the visit itself continued in fine style, you know, lots of opportunities to visit schools and farms and so forth. And Pat Nixon, actually, Mrs. Nixon, was a, a big uh, part of those, uh, those visits and really kind of took to it with some relish, I think, you know, sort of this very, very bright red coat, which some might have thought was politically slightly uh, pointed, um, which she was wearing. But of course, February in China, North China is really cold. It's a very very, very chilly place, no, no question of sunshine. And so it was necessary to be as, 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 as wrapped up as possible. And this sort of image of this American first lady in her prominent red coat at a sort of collective pig farm and, at, you know, a school, uh, a school session where people are chanting with English, the children are chanting English at her. All of these made for great television, which certainly helped to boost Nixon's statesman image back at home as it was, you know, relayed back on the, the evening news. But behind the scenes, a whole bunch of lower level, but very important negotiators were coming together and really putting forward some tough, you know, arguments of both sides. The end point was clear. They wanted to get to full diplomatic recognition of um, the PRC and the United States. But there were many, many issues that had to be overcome. And, you know, one of the ones that's still with us today is Taiwan. Taiwan was where the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek, the Kuomintang, had fled in 1949. They're still there. They had their own, you know, non-recognized but autonomous government there. And the question, um, so I say non-recognized, it was by that stage not recognized by the PRC. But technically at that point, the United States still recognized the Republic of China government on Taiwan as the government of all of China, even though most other Western countries had um, shifted their recognition by that stage, France, UK and Japan both shifted uh, in that year as uh, well, actually moved to, to kind of full relations in that year as, uh, as well. So the US was a bit of an outlier by that by that stage. And eventually they got 
to the end point at the end of the visit with something called the Shanghai Communique, which is still you know, very much seen as a turning point moment, in which it was stated that the intention was that the two nations would find ways to recognize each other, and that some issues, you know, Taiwan was certainly amongst them, there might be an agreement to disagree for the moment and find a way to accommodate the different views of both sides. So the Shanghai Communique was not the end of the process, but it was the end of the beginning, as Winston Churchill might have said, of that reconciliation that then took most of the 1970s before it actually came to fruition. So it was an important starting point, but it's sometimes regarded, you know, that the Nixon visit was sort of the end of a process. And in one sense it was, but it was the beginning of another one. Was it also the beginning of a broader cultural process of engagement between these two nations? Absolutely. The engagement between China and the US proceeded as much on kind of cultural and you know exchange terms in the next few years as it did, did diplomatically. In some ways, the diplomacy was a bit stop-start. Um, I mean, Nixon, of course, had his own troubles within a few years and had to resign over Watergate. Henry Kissinger was promoted to Secretary of State and remained in that job under the successor President Gerald Ford. And Ford actually visited China as well, although Ford in China doesn't have quite the glamour of Nixon in, in, in China. Being the second president to go is never as, as, as good as the, the first as, um, uh, uh, as these things go. Um, but in that context, there was, you know, diplomacy continued, not under Jimmy Carter, who came afterwards, and eventually it came off, but it was quite grinding and slow in various ways. So in between, there were a whole variety of attempts to try and build up relations at kind of lower tier levels. And in that, an organization called the U.S. National Council on Relations with the PRC, uh, which was um, very, very much led by people who were proper China experts. I mean, a very significant figure called Jan Barris, who you know is still uh, very much part of the organization and remembers as uh, you know a, a younger official um, hosting. Chinese communist delegations of, uh, of you know cadres coming to the U.S. and she's told the great stories. And in fact, um, for those who'd like to, there's a uh, BBC uh, BBC Sounds podcast called Archive on Four: The Great Wall, in which I've interviewed Jan and various other people involved with the U.S.-China relations, in which they all tell fantastic stories about trying to build this relationship up. And for Jan, one of the best stories she she tells is having to take Chinese communist officials to Disneyland which turned out to be one of the kind of top destinations that they wanted to go. At one point, that went a bit wrong because um, she um, took a whole bunch of them to the haunted house ride and was told sternly afterwards that in communist China, you know, ghosts were not permitted because they were a feudal relic of a superstitious past. and They didn't exist in, in, in China. So after that, Disneyland was always on the agenda, but never in the haunted house. So that sort of encounter did quite a lot in a slightly weird way to build up a kind of network of relationships, even when the very, very top negotiators were sort of slowly but surely and slightly grudgingly and grindingly making their way towards that big diplomatic breakthrough that finally took place under, under Jimmy Carter at the end of the 19, 1970s. And what, what was that big breakthrough? Well, the breakthrough that really made the difference was the full declaration of diplomatic relations between the People's Republic of China and the United States of America, which took effect from the 1st of January 1979. It wasn't smooth. And it wasn't without controversy. Supporters of Taiwan in the US Congress, as well as, of course, in Taiwan itself, were pretty unhappy with the whole arrangement. It's one of the reasons why something was passed through Congress called the Taiwan Relations Act, still very much with us today, even in the 2020s, which authorizes the US not to recognize Taiwan as a country. It doesn't do that. But it does give the US the right to provide means for Taiwan to defend itself against attacks from whoever it might be. But of course, the suspicion is it would be the mainland of, uh, of, of China. Uh, so, you know, that side of things remained quite controversial. But overall, 
particularly from the momentum that had been created since the Nixon visit in, in 1970, uh, 1972, it was clear that the direction of travel was towards full recognition. And at some level, it clearly was a moment of logic because there was no way that a country the size and importance of China could continue to be an unrecognized state in the global community, particularly since the United Nations had granted the PRC the China seat on the UN Security Council as early as 1971. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think one quite simple one, which is that in the end, the gains that were made from the Nixon visit came from dialogue in all its forms. Uh, It came from dialogue that meant that people had to meet and sit and eat and talk with each other, whether it was presidents or chairmen of parties or table tennis players or, you know, communist cadres riding the rides at, at Disneyland. They all had to meet and talk with each other. They also learned, at least at that point, to find ways to disagree without coming to blows. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Do we get a sense of how the meeting and the process more generally changed the view of the two nations amongst the populations of both nations? The Nixon visit and the, con- the, the subsequent visits by diplomats and you know by kind of civil society actors between both societies, I think did a lot to change perceptions of both countries amongst the population of each other. In China, one of the things that became much more commonplace was encouraging people to learn English. And the opportunities that really emerged in the 1980s onwards for young Chinese women and men to go to America and actually study there became much more commonplace. Uh, and this could be obviously to study English, but it could also be to learn in areas where China desperately needed to develop its own standing, such as technology and science. And so the sense, for instance, in China, which still, you know, 
has some standing, I think, that America was the fount of the most globally significant science, whether it was you know, going to the moon or, you know, vaccines or, you know, medicine that would change the world uh, or computers. That was all very much something that was hugely understood and admired in China at that time and was made clearer by the ability of Chinese students to go back and forth between China and America at that uh, at that time. And it's one of the reasons why China today is so proud of the fact that in the last few years, it too has become an innovator in technology in a way that was simply unimaginable in the 1970s and 80s. Now, the other way around, clearly, it was not quite going to be the case that Americans of the 70s and 80s would look to China for technology. But there was a stronger understanding of China as a major, significant global power that, of course, we sometimes forget was also a sort of unstated friend against the Soviets in the 70s and 80s. It's worth remembering the 70s and 80s in particular were a really, really cold period of the Cold War between the Soviets and the Americans. You know, Ronald Reagan's rhetoric about the evil empire was not about China. It was about the Soviet Union. And all of the debates of that era about Star Wars, defense systems and so forth, very much about Reagan's America and the Soviet Union pre-Gorbachev squaring up against each other, often in a very dangerous way. So the irony became for many Americans, both in terms of the top leadership and in wider society more broadly defined, that China was seen as, yeah, it's a communist country, but it's the friendly communist country, if you can imagine such a thing. And perhaps a symbolic moment of that in 1984 was the Los Angeles Olympics. The Soviets boycotted it because, of course, the Americans had boycotted the Moscow Olympics of 1980 because of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. But the Chinese went to both. And the Chinese presence at the LA Olympics was one of the milestones in terms of what we see today, which is China becoming one of the one, two or three greatest Olympic nations in the world. And they did that in large part also by engaging with America rather than uh, standing away from it. It's so interesting you mentioned the 84 Olympics there, because as we're talking, the Winter Olympics are happening at the moment. And the situation globally is obviously quite different now from what it was then. What do you think are the long term legacies of this episode? Um, And do you think they've really stayed with us, given how much more fraught, I suppose, things seem to be now? There's no doubt the relationship between America and China today is extremely problematic and hostile in many aspects. In some ways, That is the inheritance of what happened 50 years ago when Nixon visited China. And the former Secretary of State of the US, Mike Pompeo, made a big speech in 2020, uh, in the last year of the Trump presidency in California, in which very politely, but very firmly, he basically said that, you know, Nixon and the others after him had got it wrong in terms of opening up to China as much as they had. I have to say that that's a view that's been pushed back against both by Republicans and Democrats, uh, people on both sides of the political spectrum in the US who feel that engagement with China was necessary and in a sense unavoidable in that sense. But I think that the legacy that we have today, for good or ill, I think it's just a fact of life, is that the globalized China of today wouldn't exist had it not been for that opening. Because think about the places in the 2020s where China has either a major role or dominance um, in technology much of which, of course, it drew on and has adapted from what it learned, you know, from all the students studying in Silicon Valley. Or in terms of global capital, you know, China 
benefited hugely from the investment markets, uh, the investment opportunities that came uh, from being in the New York markets, or indeed being able to export huge numbers of goods to uh, an America that was willing to buy. And that, of course, you know, helped create the Chinese economic miracle that we all um, know about in that, that sense. China's presence in the World Trade Organization, you know, very important actor there today, that was done with American help and assistance. People like Bob Zelik, who um, became president of the World Bank, but as the Assistant Secretary of State under the Bush administration, Bush number two, um, Republican, of course, was very much about completing the business that Clinton, the Democrat, had started of getting China as an actor in the World Trade Organization. Again, many figures wouldn't have perhaps predicted that China would become in some ways a very confrontational actor in those international bodies. But you then have to make a counter argument that China being excluded and externalized from all these organizations would have made it a more compliant and benevolent actor. And I'm not sure that that's an argument that can logically uh, logically hold. So in a sense, part of that story over 50 years is about a legacy of decisions that were made. But I think it shouldn't be forgotten that there was a level at which, which I think Nixon understood with his comment about having to bring China into the family of nations eventually, that beyond a certain point, it would have been impossible not to make such a gesture. And that the bringing of China into the international community was by that stage probably long overdue rather than something that shouldn't have been attempted at all. Do you think that studying this episode changes or should change our impression of the politicians involved? Nixon, for instance, do you think we need to have a different impression of him given his role in this? I don't know about different, but I think it is important to note that one can look at people in the round. Some of the things that Nixon did, particularly domestically, um, still, I think, you know, don't stand up to any kind of moral scrutiny. The Watergate um, uh, um, break-in being an example of that. Although, again, perhaps in recent years, we've seen that uh, other presidents also have their own uh, flaws that uh, are noticeable. I won't name names, but I think everyone can guess where we might look for uh, for, for some of that. More than one president as well. Um, but at the same time, uh, and internationally, you can also see areas like, for instance, subversion of the Chilean government in 1973 and the overthrow of the Allende government and, you know, essentially um, facilitating a military coup, you know, a bombing of Cambodia. So, you know, we can name all sorts of things the Nixon administration did that I think sit pretty badly in the present day. However, you can also look at the big strategic gains that came from the uh, height of Nixon's also undoubted capacity in a way that very few leaders, even of America, have managed to do, to think genuinely geostrategically. And I point up two, I think, which I think can still be flagged up uh, on, on the positive side. One is the opening to China. One is absolutely the opening to China, because, as I say, I think it was inevitable. And I think the argument that a US president shouldn't have used the huge political capital he had as a right winger and use it to open up to communist China uh, was not in some ways quite a bold act, but also one that in the end sent the US-China relationship, at least for a while, in the right direction. But the other one that links to it is detente. It is notable that the early to mid-1970s was a relatively less tense time in some ways in terms of the Soviet-US confrontation, certainly less so than the, at times, very, very cold uh, Cold War of the early 1980s that I've mentioned. And also, of course, many of the confrontations of the 60s, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, a whole variety of other things that look like they might be the moment for you know real conflagrations. Now, it's not that things were entirely all peace and light and um, happiness during the 70s, certainly not. But detente was real. The 
discussion with the Soviets of reducing uh, nuclear arsenals during that period was real. And I think that one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why Nixon and Kissinger and you know, Bill Rogers and the other people involved had credibility in actually reducing tension with the Soviets was that they were a anti-communist enough that people believed that they uh, they could do it with credibility, but b that the other great threats, the Vietnam War and the possibility of a hostile China, basically you know coming up against the United States along with the Soviets, were definitively defused at least for that decade or so, and that opened up other opportunities such as such as detente. So I think in in retrospect, that period does have some aspects that do look as if they were a genuine move forward in terms of the ultimate ending of the Cold War. Thank you so much. Finally, are there any other lessons or I suppose legacies of this period that we should bear in mind? today in 2022? I think one quite simple one, which is that in the end, the gains that were made from the Nixon visit came from dialogue in all its forms. Uh, It came from dialogue that meant that people had to meet and sit and eat and talk with each other, whether it was presidents or chairmen of parties or table tennis players or, you know, communist cadres, you know, riding the rides at, at Disneyland. They all had to meet and talk with each other. They also learned, at least at that point, to find ways to disagree without coming to blows. Uh, you know, on Taiwan, again, it would be an example of that sort of question that was never really resolved, but could be you know, placed in a place where other things could be done. There are signs that sometimes the capacity to create that sort of dialogue and forums in which both sides can understand where the other side is coming from have been less obvious in recent years. I think there's been a bit more of a move back towards it in the last year or two, but there is no doubt that US-China relations today are in a very, very fragile state. So learning how one can actually have and move forward dialogue, I think is one of the things that we should look back to the Nixon visit for. Half a century later, we're in a very different situation and one which has a very different America as well as a different China. But that having been said, the basic principles of understanding that big powers have to learn how to talk to each other remains quite constant. That was Rana Mitter. You can read more from Rana about Nixon's trip to China in the March issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.